Hello everyone, this is the Getting Social Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Palacard, and today we have a very important episode, a much needed episode. And the idea for this edition originated from a conversation I had with an old friend of mine, Steve Desosiers, on social media about a topic that keeps coming back over and over again. I think it's safe to say that this year, has potentially set the tone for what the future might possibly look like, both for the good and the bad. We now know how volatile life is, how expendable it is in way too many instances. But what can we do as entrepreneurs, business owners, and leaders to change the course? How can we impact our communities, empower people, inspire people, help each other, build each other up, offer our children a positive and loving environment for them to become leaders of their own, attorneys, judges, cops, sincere and hardworking politicians that actually serve the people. These are some of the things we're going to talk about. It's an honor for me to have our guest today, Steve Desosiers, on the show. He's an historian. He's opened my eyes on so many issues and, and, and facts, and I hope he does the same for you. So without further ado, it's time to get social. All right, Steve. Yes, man, So happy to have you here. Yes. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. It's a pleasure to finally reconnect. It's been yep. too long. So yep. I'm really, really happy. You have no idea how happy I am to have this moment here with you tonight. Yeah, man. Same here. We had uh, multiple conversations on Facebook, so it's great to reconnect. And you actually said, listen, man, this is something that we need to talk about more in depth. And uh, I told you the only way we will talk about this is if you actually my guest and we made it happen. So thank you for that, man. Thank you. I am honored to be here as a guest and I'm glad you kept your promise. Yes, um, sir. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of series that you've done already with other folks and I'm like, man, this guy's got something going. We got to take this conversation here uh honestly man uh i you've inspired me um i've been a lot more vocal and uh even just mindful you know just to think of, of the ways that i can make an impact in whatever way that i can so thank you for that and um we have some history together you know uh, 20 years ago uh yeah. if, if not more maybe a little bit more <laughs> which yeah. you know, does tremendously but we are uh, both musicians, right? And there was a time where we were talking about you possibly joining my band. Uh, that would have probably changed history, you know? And you ended up joining Kali Me, which did change history, right? So that's, that's awesome, man. But hey, that's, that's why out of control. Folks had no idea that I was almost a member of T-Dos, man. I remember that time you guys were like in my, in my bedroom at my mom's house and we were jamming in my room and like talking about what the next steps were going to be. Oh man, look, I awesome. I loved your style, man. I think you played such a role like in the in the in that band's like you know takeoff, you know, the initial, you know, the album and then just the overall vibe that you had that you brought in. Um we'll talk music at some other point because actually I do have some other musical projects that we're working on. Okay. Now that we've reconnected, so we'll talk about a little bit more about that. 
my, my guitars are here. My hands are yours, man. I'm, I'm always here. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, I mean, hey, I, I'm planning on trying to, to write something that's relevant to what's going on. I haven't really felt the, you know, I don't know, like uh, the inspiration, even though it should be there because I'm so passionate about what we're going to be talking about. And it's true. Like, I'm not only passionate, but I, it, it, it keeps me up sometimes, just yeah. not because of exactly the moment per se, but just the history of it, you know, yeah. how, you know, how deep it is. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And you, uh, well, before we even talk about that, aside from music, tell us a little bit about your background and actually why you're, you're the perfect fit to tell us about what you're going to be telling us. Ah, all right. Well, um, I am Haitian, as you guys know. I was born in Haiti in Port-au-Prince. I'm not going to give away the date because I, you know, I'm still too young to be as old as I am. So we're going to leave <laughs> that there. But I basically grew up in Boston, um, went to school here, went to Boston College. Um, I come from a family of educators um, and, uh, you know, majored in history. Um, and I've been working for the Boston Public Schools for the past umpteen years. And so um, outside of music, my other passion is reading books and reading anything I, I can uh, of history and learning as much as I can about world history. Right. And so I'm very passionate about a multitude of issues and, and what you see on my Facebook page. And the reason that we really enjoy each other's um, kind of postings on Facebook is because there's a there's a relevance to them. You know, I think we're using these platforms not only to share our passions, but to show our concern for where we think our society needs to go. And we're certainly at least being vocal about, you know, the kind of world we want our children to grow old. in. Um, so let me see. Talked a little bit about my career. So I currently still work for the Boston Public Schools. Uh, I work for their Office of Advancement. Um, and so we do a lot of work around capacity building for families, um, ensuring that they get the best outcomes educationally for their children, and then making sure they're part of decision making in their school. So that's kind of like my day to day. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, you know, I have a bunch of interests. You know, I still tour with the music thing every once in a while. Um, I don't know. Is that enough? That's enough, but there's one thing, um, the, the history part. So I, oh, okay. So you, you have, you're a history major. Yes. You know, so obviously that qualifies you for a lot of the things we're going to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, man. So well, yeah. History major who actually also uh, went to law school. So okay. here's the thing that my, my mother's never, for, never forgiven me for. Okay. So uh, I, I went from history straight to law school on a scholarship. And the minute that Kylie called me with, with the opportunity, I dropped out of law school. <laughs> I remember we spoke about so, that briefly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I may have left a, a, a lucrative political career where I could have, you know, who knows, impacted this very moment. You never know. But anyhow, she's always telling me, you know, it's never too late for you to go back. I'm sure they have their scholarship money waiting for you right there. And look, how, look how this played out. Like, had you stayed in Kylie all over those years, yeah. Um, Isha Kabi just released a song called Criminal. Maybe you would have defended him by now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Let's get right to it. In the, in the intro, in the intro package, uh, we spoke about how expendable life has become. Uh, is it that people don't value life the same? Is it, is it part of the system? Is it, I mean, the part of the system that's failing us as a whole? Is it, is it greed? Um, why, why do we have such disparity? You know, what is at the root of, of all this? And that's the point of this conversation today. So let's start at the root. Yeah. 
So I think for me, when I think, and specifically we're talking about Black Lives Matters, we're talking about the death of Mr. George Floyd. And then I'm glad we're having this conversation today because we can see that this is a big problem because this man died a couple of weeks ago. There have been additional deaths, right? At the hands of police. So most recently in Atlanta, Mr. I forget his name. Um, is it Rashard? Rashard? Yeah, young, young black man, 27 years old, sleeping. Yeah, that's right, Mr. Shard. I think sleeping in, in, in the parking lot of a Wendy's and he loses his life right there. So when I saw that video, you know, of course, you've got to begin to think about the systematic ways we think about life in this country. And for me, the, the starting point to frame some understanding around what we, where we need to go and how we need to kind of understand this moment is to go back to like the, the spiritual roots of this issue, right? And so for me, the story, you know, uh, as, as a Christian, as a, as a, not necessarily that I'm going to church every Sunday, but I've read my Bible and I've read the entire Bible. And so I like to frame I, things in terms of the spiritual essence that we need to confront when we deal with issues like this, right? How do our core values um, help us understand moments like this so that we know how to speak to our children, so that we know how to steer ourselves, right? So the starting point for me is the story of, of Cain and Abel. Right. So Cain and Abel were the two sons of Adam and Eve. Right. In the beginning of the story of Genesis in the Old Testament, Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. So they were doing the work that they do in, in life and, and they would present gifts to God, you know, as offerings of, you know, their, their, their appreciation for who he was. Right. So. Cain always brought, you know, whatever he felt like bringing. Abel, on the other hand, would always bring the best of his flock first and then keep whatever was left over for himself. Cain had an issue with that and eventually winds up killing his brother. <laughs> he killed his younger brother. So God basically approaches him and says, you know what? Your brother's blood cries out to me. What have you done? And this guy's like, listen, I have no idea. Am I his keeper? Am I my brother's keeper that you're asking me this question? So you can imagine the gall of this guy, right? But I think when you think about Ken, you also can see what his priorities are, right? So not only is he going to keep the best of his food for himself, he doesn't realize that the source of all he has is up above. He also doesn't realize no matter what it is, you know, he can't take it with him. And he has no fear of, of his creator, right? He has absolutely no fear, completely self-centered. Cain is punished by God. The thing that's always amazed me about that story is that God doesn't kill Cain in return. And then God doesn't allow anybody else to kill Cain. And so the question for me was like, why? Why would God not just like give him straight justice, right? So that everybody could see this. And I think it's because this question is a question that we are left with. Am I my brother's keeper? It is the question that ripples down through Cain's own grandchildren, because he has a grandson who basically also becomes a killer and justifies his killing by saying, since God protects my dad for this, then he also protects his dad, you know, my, protects me. He protects me sevenfold, so I can kill anybody I want, right? <laughs> so you can see that Cain in his lifetime probably never learned a lesson, never answered that question the right way, but certainly didn't value his younger brother. He didn't ask God, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Abel's dead. 
He said, oh, my God, just make sure nobody kills me. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was his big concern. His grandchildren turn out the same way. So for me, I look at that question as the question that all of our generations, all of our children have to answer. Right. Am I my brother's keeper? Me, the intelligent guy, the guy with the college degree, the guy with whatever, um, the guy who happens to be the white police officer who has power, who has a gun. You know, why the hell should I care about some worthless black person who my constitution says is three fifths of a person? Right. And for me, that story teaches me where God's investment is. Right. God wanted Cain to realize the value of material things. Right? What's the big deal? You give me the best of your fruit. Am I not going to give you more? Of course I am. Am I not the one who's the source of all you have? Of course. But you killed the thing that I thought was really important. I gave you a brother. I can't just give you another brother like that. And you killed him. You showed me that you don't value him at all. And so the question is there for us to wrestle with. It was there for Cain to wrestle with for the end of, of his life, probably. And he must have not wrestled with it well because his grandchildren turned out killers, right? And so it's important for us to understand stories like this and to frame things on a spiritual level so that we understand what is at stake. You can't bring back a life. You don't know the potential of one human life. You don't know the value of one human life, right? So. As a musician, um, one of the ways I can think about this is that, yo, you know, maybe jazz, Haitian jazz music means nothing to you, man. But if this guy, you know, Reginald Policar is not putting out albums, yo, I have a problem because I'm over <laughs> here learning my La Vie One Day, trying to get my guitar right because of this one human life. One human life was very valuable to me. And now I'm, I'm, I'm friends with his sons, right? And we've almost done music together. We've shared stages, shared stages together. So what is the value of life? And for me, it begins there. It begins with that story because I think if we begin to kind of frame things in terms of what is valuable to our creator, then we can gain some real perspective about what is actually happening when we allow lives to be taken like this. Um, when our values, you know, don't dictate how the policing is done in our communities. So we're going to transi transition over to uh, Haitians and their uh, or our uh, uh, role in, in all of this. And I, I think as Haitians and as Haitian entrepreneurs, we, where do we fit in, in, uh, in America's story? Especially that in Haiti, we have our own problems. We have an yeah. old, like racial injustice, in my opinion. Like it goes even deeper to me. Yeah. Um, but where do we fit in, uh, in America's history? So interestingly enough, we are like right dead center in the middle of America's history. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's incredible because uh, we don't know, understand our history well enough, but a lot of Americans don't understand how we fit into their mm -hmm. story well enough either, right? So at, at the, let's start at the time where America was just a series of colonies, right? The French were making, so we call IET, our country, La Perle des Antilles, mm -hmm. right? And the reason was because the French had a system of slavery where they basically worked the slave to death, okay? So that was the model for what capitalism was going to be. 
they made so much money. The French planters in Haiti impacted politics in France. So just like you could see the buying of politicians that happens in America right now that puts certain corporations above the law, the same kind of thing was being done then. You know Americans are ambitious, business-oriented people. So the colonists, before they, were, they freed themselves from the British, so they were trading with Haiti illegally. And the reason was because the way these planters were using the land, they were only growing like what's called cash crops, right? Only sugar, only coffee, only things that they could sell for big money in Europe, spices, which meant that they weren't growing their own food. They weren't, there was nowhere to buy clothes or, or anything like that. So they were bringing in their food, right? Importing their food from New England farmers. And New England farmers were finding ways to not pay the British taxes, right? So Americans have an issue with paying taxes to the British. And so one of the reasons why America goes towards because of how much money they're making with islands like Haiti and Jamaica and all the rest of it, right? Illegally, right? They're circumventing British, you know, ships that are controlling the trade. They're making a whole bunch of money. And it's because of the kind of slavery that's being practiced in Haiti. They, they're working these men to death. So they're not trying to feed them enough. They're not clothing them. That's what it's called, right? That's what the name of the game is. This is basically a very rough version of capitalism. And that's where American, the American idea for capitalism comes from, right? The idea of scale, the idea of doing things on a global basis, providing for a market. Those are French ideas that Americans take on, right? So that's one thing to understand about why the American Revolution was fought in the first place. It was just how powerful and wealthy, how much money there was that this one little sliver of an island, half an island was making, right? Because Haiti was only like half of the entire island of Hispaniola. The other half of Haiti was being managed by the Spanish, but what the Spanish were after were, was gold, right? They were, they were after like minerals and all the rest of that. They weren't cultivating the land. They didn't see value in land management. Completely different system from the French system, and the French were fabulously wealthy. The French were so wealthy that they basically owned the bigger chunk of America. And if I can, do I have power to share my screen with you? Really Absolutely. Okay. So for those of you who are going to be watching this, are going to be able to see, see the, those uh, graphics. So this is basically, this is the history. This is the teacher in me right now, right? <laughs> this is the Prezi that I use um, to talk about Haitian history and to connect Haitian history to American history. So here is a picture of Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And here is a picture of America, right? And I'm sorry I can't get it to, you know, to be bigger. But if you look at the orange part of this picture here on the map of America, at the time um, before 1803, this is what America is. It's 13 small colonies with no power. That's what it is. The French own the green portion here. Do you see all that land over here? Yep. That is what is called the Louisiana territories. It's not just Louisiana, right? Mm -hmm. So that speaks to just how much power the French had. And of course, you know, the French basically owned the rest of Canada, right? So just think about how much money this small little piece of the Caribbean made for one superpower. The rest of America belongs to Spain. So this orange section right here belongs to Spain. So one of the great consequences of the, the, 
the liberation of Haiti in 1803 by Jean-Jacques Dessalines, is that Napoleon has to sell off all of this land to America really quickly because he invested so much in trying to defeat Toussaint's guys that he spent way too much, he overextended himself. Too many wars going on. He thought he was going to win Haiti really easily. He was wrong. And those losses wound up to him having to give up all of this territory to America, right? That is because Haitians were willing to fight three superpowers to liberate Haiti. They fought the French off. Then they fought the Spanish off. Then they fought the English off, which shows you the kind of power and the kind of money that Haiti was making at the time and how America directly benefits from that. So America is getting its ideas and business from the French. America is learning how to treat black people eventually from the French because Southern planters in the South of America are learning how West Indian planters are controlling slaves and dealing with slave rebellion and all the rest of that, all right? The third gift is that America by 1803 is automatically going to become a superpower in one, fell swoop. We win that battle. France has to sell all this territory. America is doubled in size. Hmm. And now it's going to start making serious money, right? Not necessarily from the slave trade only, but, you know, they're going to people this land. They're going to start industries. They're going to start businesses and all the rest of this, right? So we're very much tied into the success of this country, period. Period, from beginning to that point. Now, America as a musical center of the world and how it relates to Haitians. Frenchmen who slept with black women and had babies by them did not disown those babies. They educated them. They were called Creoles. And they had the choice of either living in Haiti or in Louisiana. Because if they had a rich father, that father probably owned a plantation in Haiti and also had land holdings or additional plantations in the French part of America, right? right? Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. So now these French fathers recognize their sons and daughters. They don't give them political power, but they do educate them. And one of the ways in which they educate them is they educate them in music. Do you see where I'm going to go with you here? Oh, this is... You see where I'm going to go with you here? Yes. So, because planters in Haiti are not going to sit there and entertain themselves, they're going to send their sons and daughters to learn the arts in France. They come back to Haiti and they become teachers, whatever, but, you know, entertainers and musicians too, if they want, right? These Mm -hmm. are the heirs of really rich fathers. In America, the ones who live in America are teachers of music to white students. These Creoles, who are highly trained musicians, right, <laughs> are teaching music in this area of America to white students. Eventually, America establishes the Jim Crow laws, right? After, after the Civil War, they say, you know what? We don't want any mulattoes around our white people at all. You're, you're either all white or you're all black. And even if you have one drop of black in you, we don't want you around us. So what begins to happen is that these Creoles who had access, who only wanted to kind of, you know, relate to white Americans, now have to teach black Americans music in order to survive, right? And this is basically going to lay the groundwork for jazz music. 
This is going to, this education is what is going to lead to the establishment of jazz music eventually in America. So it's deep. The Haitian connection, contribution, in essence, in America is deep, right? So when we ask ourselves these questions, you know, do Black Lives Matter? Keep answering that question. Keep answering that question as I share this history with you. If I kill one person, is it a big deal? You don't even know who you've killed, right? <laughs> That's like deciding, well, I'm going to kill Wynton Marcellus. Is that a big deal? Oh, maybe. Maybe not to you, right? Yeah. But these guys are going to be the ones to teach, uh, you know, a generation of musicians who are going to establish ragtime music. So folks like uh, Jelly Roll Martin, you know, and these guys were also had branches of their families who were great musicians in America and also great musicians in Haiti. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm going to take it one step further because it might be too overwhelming. When French planters began to leave Haiti because the revolution was successful, one of the places they went to was Cuba. And Cuban high culture in music is a result of this French standard that they actually have. Now, they're going to blend this French culture with Spanish culture in Cuba, but the beginning of, this, of the Cuban sugar economy happens because of the Haitian Revolution and because Haiti is going to be ostracized by Europe. They're not going to take Haiti sugar anymore after that point, right? So Cuba is going to be established, but also Cuban culture is going to be highly influenced by Haitian culture. So just thinking about how our history merges and how central it is to the development of the Americas in general, because we haven't even touched upon the fact that had our founding fathers not funded Simon Bolivar, half of South America would probably still be enslaved. That's another story. Mm-hmm. But in terms of America itself, we are central, central to the success of this country as a superpower in the world. So that's the historical foundation. So do Black Lives Matter in that sense? To me, the answer is yes. What is the value of one black life? Okay, well, tell me the value of the life of Toussaint Louverture. Tell me the value of the life of Jean-Jacques Dessalines. If these are the guys that you erase from your country's history, you've lost a whole lot. And so if Mm. these guys are here killing people indiscriminately in America, George Floyd and, and, and Rashad and whoever else, you have no idea what you've done. You don't know what potential was housed in that life, right? You don't know what gifts that person was supposed to cultivate to bring some aspect of humanity to another place. So to me, that's how I like to frame the historical part of the discussion. What do you think? Wow, man. I, I don't even know where to begin. Like first, you know, not only the implication of, of us Haitians the, for the success economically you know, of, of the U.S., but then the music part, although I think it's probably the most obvious, I have, I've had the chance to visit New Orleans. Ah. And one of the best experiences I've ever had, uh, to be honest with you, music, food, culture. Mm. Um, actually, <laughs> ironically, the, the guy, the first guy, uh, the taxi driver, that, the first guy that we met in, um, in New Orleans. And that was, that was for my, um, that was for my, uh, um, what do you call that? My um, honeymoon. Wow. 
Awesome. Um, the first guy was Haitian. Like he wasn't, he wasn't <laughs> Haitian born. It was a descendant. Right. And I, I knew it from his name and I saw his tag. Right. I started talking to him in Creole and he laughed and he's like, yeah, you probably saw my tag. Uh, I do have a Haitian name. I don't speak Creole. Like, you know, I speak a little bit, you know, but I don't speak Creole. That's right? it. That's it. I'm bro. like, oh man, this is great. What a great start. Right. And because now I started realizing, it's like, man, this is how deep this thing is. Like uh, as far as Louisiana, New Orleans, our, our involvement in the development Absolutely. of that culture, that's so rich. So I go there, right? And now the architecture, like I, my wife, my wife doesn't get it because mm. my wife hadn't been to Haiti yet, but she got it. I took <laughs> her to Haiti. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I took her to Haiti. <laughs> yes. I did. <laughs> I took right. her to Kabaisin. One of the reasons because of that, listen, when, I, when we go to Kabaisin, you will see exactly what I mean. Like, that's that's why I was at all. I was just watching this thing. I'm like, this is. This is so beautiful. This is like Haiti. This is, you know, in the culture state, in the food, so rich, in the music. Man, I, I, I don't even know where to begin. It was one of the best experiences um, ever to me. Um, so it's, it's, it's fun and fulfilling for me right now to hear the true, I guess, history behind it. Yeah. You know, how it came about. Right? right. I had no idea. I just knew that it was, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to explain it to her. Right? But... <laughs> Now I will be able to do that. Let me give you one last piece, which is yeah. important. If you look at the history of the early jazz bands, mm -hmm. they called it Creole Jazz. They spelled mm -hmm. it J-A-S-S. -S. Okay. And Jassé is a French word for having fun. Jassé. Oh. Right? So if you so look that's at where the, the word came from? Yes. The word jazz come from, comes from jazz. Jasse means to have fun. So if you look at these big black guys standing behind these drums, Creole jazz, spelled with an S, right? So the layers and layers of evidence, if you look through the history, is absolutely fantastic. We are in this, the middle of that. This and if is you consider awesome. just how many jazz musicians have French last names in terms of the old guys, mm -hmm. the guys in the era of Louis Armstrong and all the rest of that, Sidney mm -hmm. Bichet. Mm -hmm. The fact that this guy can go to France whenever he wants to and he doesn't feel any qualms about shooting off his gun in France, that shows you. <laughs> he comes from money. He's not afraid. He feels entitled. He's not seeing himself like an, uh, like an enslaved African-American. Not, not to put anything down, but yeah. the, there was a term that they used to refer to those guys, right? So in Louisiana, they were called, a black man who was that rich was called, oh, he's, he's a Creole. He's rich as a Creole because they couldn't understand how these light-skinned people had all this money and all this power. So it's fantastic history. And I will tell my dad about this part, about the, the origins of the name. You know, oh, yeah, your dad will love that. I just want to yeah. see if he, if he knows. Probably yeah. does. He probably you can does. Google that and, and see the pictures. Man, that's amazing. Creole Jazz. Jazz, that's amazing. Let's move a little bit forward in, in, in time. Uh, let's bring it back to, I guess, today. We've had, a, you know, I guess, all the way, all the way back from the Bible, right? So uh, to, through history, uh, our involvement, and now, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that, you know, basically everybody, at least for me, everybody in the world that has a little bit, even if it's the tiniest drop of compassion, and, well, 
common sense, not even, even if you don't have compassion, if you have common sense, you should realize that this is, you know, serious. There is a quote that I read. I don't know. It's anonymous it's from, from, for, for now because I don't know who wrote it. Actually, I thought I thought he was a cousin of mine and uh, he made me feel like crap about it, thinking that, you know, I stole his quote. And, and then I said, <laughs> no, actually, I don't. It's not mine. I don't know why I got it. Either. <laughs> you know, like, OK, whatever. Yeah. So like, what he said, huh? He's like, you got it from me. Yeah, yeah. That's why he made me think, but he was joking around. But it says, saying that black lives matter does not mean that all lives don't matter. But when, li when black lives don't matter, all lives can't matter. And, and I mean, if anybody in the world, I think, I think my, you know, my five-year-old son could understand that. Mm -hmm. It's logical. We're not saying that, you know, black lives are the only lives that matter. Right. As a matter of fact, we're just saying that we are the only lives that don't matter. Exactly. Think about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's, what, that's what it actually means, right? Exactly. So what's your take on what's going on now with, you know, you know we, we're kind of past the riots, at least, honestly, and this is completely honest, I don't watch the news anymore. Hmm. I have no idea what's going on. They could, they could be riots right now in downtown Miami. I probably would not know, honestly. Uh, I, would, might, I might learn from it on Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. um, or maybe local news that sometimes I, I, I do watch sometimes. Right. But um, so I don't even know what, where we're at right now in that. You know, I just know that this past weekend, um, again, you know, some... <laughs> I mean, we're right in the middle of this and then something else happens. And I heard about something. I don't even know if it's true. I didn't see that in the news, but the hanging of two That's black right. men. That's right. That they are so far saying it's suicide. Um, their families are not having it. I'm not going to say much about it because I have no idea. You know, yeah. But to me, it you know, it's, yeah. sounds fishy. I mean, it's a huge coincidence. You know? I mean, if, I, if I wanted to do a suicide thing, I wouldn't find the most painful way to do it, right? Uh, not only that, the more, I mean, this is in two people too. I mean, I, I, I know. Right. So, so was, yeah, there's something exactly. going on, right? So, exactly. share with us your take on what's going on: the protests, the riots, the politics behind it, yeah. right? The, the the racial injustice, yeah. Um, and the whys. We need some 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 answers. Nobody has them, but share your your thoughts with us. Absolutely. Well, the way when I look at the word Black Lives Matter, one of the ways when I speak to younger people about it who are kids and when, I, you know, when I'm doing in the course of my work, sometimes a discussion will come up. I try to have them understand is like what people are saying is that Black Lives Matter as well, mm -hmm. as well and as much as anybody else's life, mm -hmm. because we're the only ones who are consistently losing our lives. Right. Mm -hmm. That's just life itself. We're also the only ones who are consistently you know, not around good schools, being discriminated against, not getting um, the loans that we need to refurbish our houses or even buy houses, being given the worst of loans, right? So in so many ways, discrimination in this country is saying to black people, your life, no matter if you have, you can have a PhD, you can have whatever level of education you want. We're going to prove to you and show you that when it comes to black or white, your life does not matter. So black lives matter to me is getting society to agree that, listen, our lives matter as well. That's what it says to me. As well as all of the other lives you can protect. Because we've seen where police, they, for the same offense, will 
restrain a white person, but will end up killing a black person. And killing them over what? George Floyd, it was over, maybe he had a fake $20 bill. So is a black life worth $20, right? Um, over, uh, previously it was the guy who was selling, you know, he's selling cigarettes on the street corner. Take his life for that. A young child, Tamir Rice, is playing with a little gun in the street, right? Take his life for that. He's a brown person, he's a black person, has no value. We will protect you in the courts. You don't even have to worry about consequences. One of the things I want you to notice is that how many black men have died since George Floyd, right? So it's almost like the police and the legal system is saying, no, we're so sure about the fact that we're gonna bounce back from this, that there are no repercussions from us, that we're gonna keep doing. Remember the Ferguson protests were about what, four or five years ago at this point? Hmm. We can't even count how many black people, men and women and children have died since then. Since, yeah. Right? So there is definitely a message that people who are paid to protect, uh, to enforce our laws, who are protected by laws that we're supposed to trust as well, they're using those laws to take our lives in a way that, in numbers that they're not taking anybody else's life in this country. So all Black Lives Matters, all Black Lives Matters is saying is that our lives matter as well. I think. When we look back at the way the protests were covered, right, there was this whole thing over violent protests versus nonviolent protests. People who were burning versus people who were just silently marching, right? One of the things I noticed was that no matter how they were protesting, the police came out there in battle gear, war gear, ready to do war with 17-year-olds and 15-year-olds who came out to protest who were not armed. That's one. Second thing, okay, these guys are burning up property and all the rest of that. And again, it brings us back to that central question over whether or not a human being is more valuable than a piece of material, right? And it's a question we all have to grapple with. Any one of those buildings that got burned down, smashed up in this country is insured like my car's insured. So if you went and busted up my car right now, I'm not worried about it. Because I know insurance is going to give me a better hey, one. You might, even, you might even work out best for you. Exactly. Exactly. So what are we talking about here? I kind of looked at the violent part of the protest as these kids want everybody to pay attention. This, this brought some people to pay attention to this conversation who might otherwise not have paid attention. Mm-hmm. It forced you to look. And it was interesting to me that it was a lot of times white kids burning up the cars and burning up the businesses. Why? Because those are probably their parents' businesses. They probably knew who the businesses belonged to. But it's a way to bring their parents into the current conversation. And people who are right now, you know, at least at the time, are hiding in their Hollywood mansions waiting for the protesters to go away so they can go back to making their money. Right? Because they don't care about the fact that many George Floyds have died. They're okay. They're okay, which is that Cain principle, right? Cain didn't care that he just lied to God about killing his own brother because Cain was primarily focused on Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Dude, not. He died. I'm alive. Protect me. Protect me. I'm alive. And so to me, it's forcing this question to everybody in a nation 
that says that it is, it is the leader of freedom, the, the leader of democracy in the world. It professes to be the nation that stands for life, for liberty, for happiness. Oh, wait a second, unless you're black, right? Not only will you not have life, we will take your liberty, we'll, we'll take your happiness. Whatever little joys that you'll have, we will try to strip you up. And so if you think about the beginning of hip hop, I was around Boston when hip hop was just beginning and I can tell you how many young rappers just went to jail because they were rapping. <laughs> that was the offense then. And how many people hated the genre. You know, it's beloved now, but people forget just how hated it was in the 80s, in the Reagan 80s, right? And then it went global. So it's significant to me that this movement is global. It went the way of hip hop. These are global issues that we're talking about. This issue of Black Lives Mattering. Racism is a global concern, right? Man's inhumanity to his fellow man is a global phenomenon, right? And on a global level, we have to deal with these issues on a global level. Do you know why, Jeff? You and I are both fathers now. What we want for our children, and I want you to think about what Haiti is now for the Haitians who live there, whether they're rich or poor. We want our children to be able to get on a plane or on a boat and go wherever the hell they want in the world without fear. That's what we want. We want them to be able to travel the globe, be welcomed everywhere, be safe, and then to come back home and to tell us about their adventure. That's what life is. That's what life is. And you have to answer to me the way we've structured life for ourselves. Right? And I want you to think about what Haiti is right now. Is that how you would, is this a life to give to a child? Even if you're rich. Let's say you're rich. <laughs> Let's say you're a billionaire in Haiti. Let's say you are. Is this the world that you're going to hand off to your children and grandchildren? And let's leave Haiti alone for a second. Let's, let's talk about America or Europe. What have we done to the planet for the sake of material possessions? For the sake of trying to be like Cain, right? Because Cain just wanted more for himself. Less for God, more for me. I don't want to pay taxes. I want to keep my money. I want to put an offshore account somewhere so I can hide my money because I got to stock up all my money, right? In the meanwhile, the earth is going to crap. The environment's not, our food isn't safe, right? <laughs> our food isn't safe. The planet's full of plastic. We are losing, uh, you know, the glacial barriers and all the rest of it. The ozone layer is basically depleted. And we're having our children and grandchildren and families in this environment. And somehow that makes sense, right? I mean, what do you think? Uh, you said that based on the constitution, a black life is worth three-fifths of a of a person. Yeah, of a person. <laughs> right. Is that is that accurate? That's accurate. It's in the constitution? It's in the constitution. In the US Constitution, in order to justify all the hell that people were gonna be brought to, right? These guys decided that a human being is made up of five parts. <laughs> and white people constitute five parts of five parts. So they're closer to God. And then black people are three-fifths of a person. 
So they're not really fully human. So it's okay to rape them, take their money, not give them education, whatever, because they don't feel like real human beings do. We're real. They're fake. We'll take their blues music. Yeah, we'll enjoy that. We'll take hip hop. Yeah, you know, great movies, whatever. They know how to dance. We'll enjoy that stuff. But they're three-fifths of a person. So they're not really real people. That will help you understand lynching, actually. And why, at, at a time that we're talking about, you know, very recently in this country's history, what you did on a Saturday night for fun was go chase down some black guy and hang him. Or if you thought that some black family had too much land and they were acquiring a little bit too much property, you basically went, you planted a cross on their lawn, you burnt it, and then you, you chased them out of town and you took that stuff. That's a tradition in the South called stripping. So if you as a black man still manage to find a way to buy property, own land, and become successful, the thing that could happen to you in the South is that they'll run you out of town. What we had in Haiti was a situation where we had um, Le Code Noir. So with the Code Noir, you had color gradations. So you had specific rights depending on what specific color you were, right? <laughs> Away from white or closer. So in America, they did something with, you know, um, fractions. <laughs> you know, a whole person is composed of five parts and a black person is three of those parts. So real human beings are five-fifths, and then the black person is three-fifths. So you almost want to ask the mathematician who figured this out, you know, what are you counting, right? What, what in the world are you talking about? And, but what it does is it legally, on a legal footing, because it's in the Constitution, right? It allows plantation owners to get away with rape, right? Killing, working people to death, um, and of course, the policing tradition in America is a family tradition, right? So father is a police person, his son follows, you know, it's, it's a family thing with policing. The history of policing is really deep in the South, right? So imagine these guys who are there to enforce the law, to uphold the Constitution, and this is what the Constitution says, right? It's embedded in the constitution of a land that's supposed to stand up for life, liberty, and happiness, right? This complete dichotomy, this complete split, right? And it's all in this question that hasn't been answered, that we have to answer. Am I my brother's keeper? That's not my brother. That black dude over there? Uh-uh, right? He's three-fifths of something. But, yo, he plays some good jazz music. I'll take that. All right, go ask Eric Clapton whether he thinks Robert Johnson is three-fifths of a person. What about Louis Armstrong? Is he three-fifths too? Right? And so you just think about the madness that is driving some of the thinking, some, a lot, all of the policing. Because, we, again, we're seeing all of these men either getting hanged or killed by police or pepper sprayed or coming into a, street, a, a peaceful street protest with riot gear. And so we have to, as a society, ask ourselves some questions, right? Because we pay taxes to this government. Do they owe us something, right? Do we need to make sure that we're being respected as, as heads of families, as citizens, as concerned citizens? Because the answer to, my, to the question for me is, am I my brother's keeper? It's yes. Nothing to do with somebody's 
color, nothing to do with whether or not they believe what I believe, right? Play the instrument that I play. No, this is a person, you know, whatever magic allows a human being to be on this earth. But here's something I tested, Jeff. When the, rest, when the worst of the rioting was going on, the people who the newscasters were calling were the artists, right? The people who not, no, they, maybe they're wealthy, maybe they're successful, but they're not Warren Buffett wealthy. They're certainly not Epstein worthy. Why wouldn't it be that at a moment when your entire country's in crisis, that the wealthiest people, the Jeff Bezos of the world, the Warren Buffetts of the world, you who have benefited from not only American education, but American capitalistic structure and all the rest of it, you're part of Wall Street, you, you have nothing to say when your country's burning down. You have nothing to say. And you want Dave Chappelle to appear and make an appearance. You want, you know, these guys were calling for all, Barbara Streisand and all kinds of stars to be the ones to say something so that the protesters can go away. What they're not doing and the people who are not volunteering to say a word are people like Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, right? Where are all the gazillionaires and millionaires who went to the top colleges, the top graduate programs, who are making the top money, who are Wall Street's darlings? They're always on the news for anything else that has to do with anything. But their country's burning down. The place that allowed them to, the place where their mansions are, right? The place that gives them the tax cuts, where they get their private jets clean, that place is burning down and they have absolutely nothing to say. They are nowhere to be found and they have nothing to say. What does that say? What does that say when your country's in trouble and you've benefited from the laws of your country, the biases of your country, the institutions of your country, and when your country's on fire, the people who were called are the people who had to fight their way from the bottom. You want Dave Chappelle to come and say something? You want some kind of black entertainer to come say something? You want them? You want Oprah? Is that it? They're the ones who are going to help you make sense of this because your, your job is to make your money and mind your business and hide in your palace until this country figures things out and you can go back to reclaiming your spot in Manhattan, your Gucci store in Manhattan. Is that, is that what it is? You have nothing to say after all of the money you've accumulated? And that's why, to me, it's an empty, you know, those are empty riches, right? You're not even a patriot. You're not there. I sent out my, uh, uh, my agency and my team and I, we sent out a blog this morning. Uh, we usually do that maybe once a month, sometimes twice a month, you know. Um, but this blog for today is, um, the title is uh, United We Stand. So basically what we're saying in the blog is, how can you have those conversations? People that there are some people that don't know seriously that that you know they're not bad people. They just really they they they've been removed so far away from this that they have no idea, right? And it's okay. I mean, hey, but they're also open to learning. They're open to understanding better. They're op they're open to having those conversations, which they know that is going to benefit, like you said earlier, your kids. You mentioned in Haiti also, right? So in Haiti, even the richest of the, of the of, you know, of the riches, what about your son and your daughter? I mean, literally, they're, wow, there's nothing to offer them. 
So you're saying that you're you're not able to bring five, you know, people together and and and, and change, <laughs> you know, something. You know, I don't know. It's it's tough. I know there's a lot of politics involved. You know, whatever. You know, I I understand sometimes people cannot do it. If I were in that position, I I know I would at least try as hard as I can. You know, to try to make a make make a a, a change. But anyway, so. This guy answers me back from the blog, and he says to remove him from my list. He doesn't want to get, and that's not the first time. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the guy to be honest with you. I, I, I might have uh, engaged with him a few years back and, and trying to maybe talking about talk about business, maybe helping him out with, with his marketing. I looked him up, and I don't remember his face, so for sure it was somebody that we maybe spoke over the phone. And I'm like, okay, um, so this guy is saying to remove him from the list that I am sorry um, to, that, to, to have brought politics into my business and representing uh, a side so far, so much more than the other, and that he escaped communism to come here almost as if as I'm, the sentence didn't make sense, but it, it was, he was implying that almost as if I were bringing back communism somehow. Right, you're, you're a showing unity. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> You're I think that's what he meant. I'm pretty sure he didn't even read. But the image, the image, <laughs> he didn't read it. But there's an image of a black hand and a white hand that's, you know, shaking hands, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's cliche, if you will, right? You know, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's, I thought it, it was a nice image. And we, you know, put together the art, you know, united we stand, right? And showing multiple colors. Mm -hmm. um, so that we're all the same. The message is that we're all the same, especially that last week we said the same thing, the same thing. The, the symbol that unites us all is the DNA symbol. It doesn't, we're all exactly the same, 99.9%. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm reading his email. I'm like, seriously, man, this is crazy. I told him, I, res I respond to him. I'm always very nice. So I respond to him and I say, thank you for you know, sharing your thoughts with us. And we will gladly remove you, you know, and, um, and we wish you the best of luck. As for us, we will continue to share um, unity, um, equality, and a lot of love. That's, That's it. it. That's but it. I'm like, seriously, so these are the kind of people that we're up against. Yeah. It might be ignorance. It might just be just a terrible person, right? Because I think the information is right there in front of you. So Absolutely. that leads me to the next question. Because honestly, I haven't even shared that with my team yet. Tomorrow's call in the morning, I'm going to make that the focal point of the conversation. And I don't even mind losing a customer. Seriously. Like, yeah, I'm going to lose money, right? But I, I think, like you say, you know, money is a tool, right? It's okay, but I think there's this, uh, it's, it's a lot more. And if he were my customer, I would have been ready to lose him too, literally. I mean, and that's, that's, that's the message I want to tell my, my, my team tomorrow morning. And what I love about my, my team also, we're all, we all have the same values, you know, and it's easy to talk to each other, literally, because we, we literally don't hold back anything, right? Awesome. And we're all ethnicities and nationalities and all that kind of stuff, but we're all basically the same. We feel the same. We respect yep. each other. We love each other. We support each other. So I'm sure it's going to be a conversation that, you know, we'll all appreciate to talk about. But Jeff Bezos actually said the same thing. So said did the same thing to a customer. I don't know if it's a publicity stunt or not. Maybe these guys they're 
super, super smart. Everything they do is calculated. Whether it was calculated or not, that's the right thing to do, right? As this customer was saying that, how dare you support Black Lives Matter? And I, think, I thought his response was pretty nice, pretty strong, right? Um, so the, next, the last question, all of that for the last question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as entrepreneurs, as influencers, leaders, um, we all have a voice. Obviously, we all have different platforms you could use. Back in the day, it wasn't the same. Right now, one tweet, one Instagram post, one Facebook message could be seen uh, by millions, billions, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but as entrepreneurs, again, and business people, leaders, uh, influencers, we have a different role in the 21st century. Um, this is something that's actually the conversation that we had, not a conversation, but a short discussion that we had that brought us here on this right. podcast. I wanted right. to make sure that we talk about that last. Yeah. We have a different responsibility. And the LeBron James of the world also that are, you know, doing a lot more than shutting up and dribbling, right? He's right. actually doing a lot more than that, than most than all of them that was <laughs> telling them to, to shut up and dribble. <laughs> so he's definitely not shutting up and then doing a lot more than dribbling. I am not cool. shutting up either. I'm doing a lot more than marketing. And I, I not to the same level, you know. But whatever, even the conversation that I'm having with you now, I had a similar conversation two nights ago, same thing, um, just to talk about it and just to try to see if, you know, you know, we can bring some light, you know, to, to certain situations. So what are your thoughts, you know, your closing thoughts? I know you touched on some of it already, but what are our responsibilities as entrepreneurs of the 21st century? Fantastic question. Thank you for it. And thank you for framing it the way you did, because I love the fact that you, you're, you're attempting to bring it into a humane and wholesome frame. Mm -hmm. And I think that the example that uh, any entrepreneur can take is to look at the average, look at the, the average LeBron James, right? He doesn't, let, let's, you know, he could be like, listen, I'm fine. I have all the money in the world. I have a great career. I am LeBron James. I don't have to go build a school, mm -hmm. right? But he does it. He does it because in the 21st century, his success doesn't mean anything when his society is struggling with racism, with poverty, with healthcare issues. It's just, you know, when you know that the average wage in the community that you grew up with is, is what, still eight bucks an hour for minimum wage. We have come from a tradition that says, look out for yourself, don't care about anybody else. That was certainly what was practiced in the, on the slave plantation in Haiti. It was the practice in the American plantation here in America. And it's certainly what the corporate plantation is about. You look out for yourself, you make sure you get the highest salary, you look out for self, 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 self. We have to also look at the results of that kind of thinking, right? Not only do we have tremendous wage inequalities, we have tremendous insecurity for most of the people of the world. I think a 21st century entrepreneur has to question the basic foundational philosophies of money makers and money making and capitalism, right? So ideas like laissez-faire, what does that mean? Laissez-faire, a French word, right? Mm -hmm which shows you again the connection between the influence mm -hmm. of the French planter on the American system. Mm -hmm. 
let me do what I want. Let me take advantage of the person who doesn't know law. Let me put that person's child in a labor camp and make them work for me too for the rest of their lives. Do you know that the United States was also the place where child labor up until like the 19, mid 1920s was permissible, right? So young children working in labor camps or working in you know, coal mines right alongside their families so that people like Rockefeller or whoever could make their money. Is that the world that you want to continue? Or can we really not, not start to think about our talents in a different way? And the different way is this idea of a win-win situation. The entrepreneur is lucky enough to have been born to the right family, right? The right education, the right breaks. You belong to a network of people who are brilliant. You have amazing reach and access. Politicians want to get to know you because you're successful, because you speak well, because you present well, because you're influential. They want to see you. They want you on their team. They want you showing up. They want to know what you think. They want to know what they can do to lend your business money. All of that is power. Can you use your leverage to give your children a more stable world, a more stable city, a more stable you know, experience of life for your children, for their friends who they like to hang out with, if they ever want to take a trip to sub-Saharan Africa? Are there things you can do in terms of using your network in a more wholesome way that will help protect how they experience life in the future, right? And how much danger they have to face or hate they have to face as they make their way in the world, if that's money-making or whatever, right? Can we structure a world where people don't completely have to be stripped down to the bare bone so that you can have as much money as you want, right? Or so that you can have as much success as you want. I think the big gift in life is the ability to have a business where you're doing work that you love. That's wealth. You get up every day and you're doing something that excites you, that you love to do, and you have people that you can employ to help you do it. Yo, if you never make a gazillion dollars, it's been a beautiful life. You've never known what it was to sit there and flip burgers at a McDonald's and put pennies aside so that you could pay for a college class, right? At one point in time, that was my life, right? And at times when you are coming from a family that wasn't rich, one of the things that you ask yourself is like, what did I do to deserve to be born to this people, right? And that's the question that all of us have to face. Why were you born to that family? to the right mom, to, to the dad who gave you the opportunities, who could figure out the steps for you and whatever. Or if you didn't have rich parents, why were you gifted with this amazing mind that could figure things out and put your business together and you know, you've got the work ethic and your mind just worked in all the right ways. You could see the angles, right? What did you get that talent and what did you do to deserve it at birth? Nothing, you did nothing. So these are gifts. These are gifts that have been given to you and you don't know why. And I think what life is asking us to do is to share our gifts. To share our gifts. Because you don't know that you'll always have the gift. My father was a brilliant intellectual in Haiti who wrote three books. My father now has Alzheimer's. It's gone. All of it's gone. All the eloquence is gone. All the, the capacity is gone. Wherever it came from, it went back into the recesses of his mind and it's gone. 
I ask myself a question a lot of times and I say, you know what? If the creator had given me a choice about how I was going to enter life, do you really think that what I was going to do is choose to be born in the poorest country in the Caribbean to a bunch of poor parents? To, yeah, so I can struggle. No, I'm going to choose right. I'm going to get it right, <laughs> right? I'm going to choose some gorgeous, good-looking people, right, <laughs> who have great genes, who are smart, and who own half of the world. <laughs> you know, I want to be born to the Roman gladiator, right? Yeah. I want to I be the son of Julius Caesar. <laughs> That's who I want to be, right? Who wouldn't, if, if you had reason and you were given a choice, who's going to choose to come here and go through hell? No one. And how did you know you were going to be born to, in, into such a great circle? You didn't know. Be humble before that when you think about how you're going to use your great gifts, how you're going to use your great intellect, how you're going to, right? Because it really is, you know, there's nothing you did to deserve it. You found things here. You found your intelligence. Yeah, you cultivated it. But then your mind in your sleep, your mind was like working it out on its own. Right? You woke up and you were 10 times smarter. <laughs> right? Because you had committed to a routine. But that's all you did. The magic is happening up here and somebody else designed the laws by which that magic works. Understand that. There is a higher power. <laughs> right? That when you're sleeping at night regulates what your body does. That doesn't rely on you. <laughs> so much that doesn't rely on you, you should be humbled before those things. Right? Yeah, you, 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 there's no effort whatsoever on your end to, to take care of what needs to be taken care of while you sleep. Nothing. And when it's time for it to go, it will go whether you want it to go or not. Mm -hmm. We can go to a place as entrepreneurs where we question the basic philosophical values of the ideas we've been sold. These ideas of laissez-faire and all the rest of that are telling you that the average human being is three-fifths of a person or less. So you don't have to pay them what they're worth. You shouldn't pay them what they're worth. You're worth everything. You got the big idea. So you take all the money. As a matter of fact, you take more money than you need and you make sure that your children never have to work. You have to question the basic ideas that this capitalist system is training you to like, <laughs> it's training you to perpetuate because it's a version of a human being. It's selling you a version of what a human being is that is as bad as what the French planters were doing in Haiti, which is, yeah, we're going to work them to death. They're worth nothing. And we don't care if they die young because there's plenty more to come, right? we got plenty of workers who want jobs. <laughs> we're going to pay them $5 an hour. <laughs> we want them to think that $50,000 50,000 bucks a year is a lot of money, right? Even though they can't even buy a house with that. We're going to keep them in perpetual debt. So to me, I have to ask myself if I want to be that. If, there's a if that's the price I want to pay to own the world, <laughs> to own stuff that I can't take with me at the end of it all anyways. You know, you've got to know what you're going to take with you, your character. You're going to take that with you. Your decisions, yeah, you're going to take that with you. Your, your, the lessons that you did not learn, you're going to take that with you. You know? And so I think for the entrepreneur, you're still a human being. You still have, you're still a father. You have sons looking up to you. You have daughters looking up to you. You have a community that can rely on you and your power, and you can use that power 
in your networks to affect positive change. And if you decide with your friends that you want the police department to believe, to behave a certain way in your community, you can do that. If you if you can decide that you if you want to decide that you want the banks in your community to behave a certain way, you can do that. If you want the 7-Eleven in your community to behave a certain way, you can do that. Just by getting together with your network of friends and having discussions around values and not just money. You can absolutely have money and still have a foundation of values that your children can respect that will give you not only a great country, but your children a better life. And to me, that has to be what is striven for going forward. Because we, we, have the, we already living in the alternative. <laughs> it's a cliff. We're all hoping not to be the, the last one to fall off, right? We're, we're all on the cliff. Bro. This is, uh, this is intense. Honestly, this is one of the best conversations I've had. Seriously. Seriously, man. We are uh, I, no, I, I, I feel like I, I want to talk to you even more. Like, uh, I want to pick your brain more. I, I, I want to go to Boston now and, and, and have <laughs> lunch with No, seriously, man. Like, I'll have lunch with you, dinner with you, or whatever, and talk some more and maybe play music. Literally, man. I, I, I feel everything that you just said right now. Um, but the way that you express yourself, it, it's, it's, that's your gift. I think you should literally be, well, I'm sure, you know, the guitar is also your gift, right? <laughs> but the way you express yourself, and I, I'm guessing, obviously, when you have, you know, your, maybe your favorite tool with you, you get, you know, you get to express yourself in, in many different ways, but you can tell the passion that you have with what you're talking about. You can tell the authenticity um and we need more people need to to to, to hear you to, to see you you know honestly and i'll do the best that i can to push this to my millions and millions of fans <laughs> <laughs> right uh, or hopefully i'm able to maybe this is like a new career home. thing for me say it again this is a new career mode for me you, you know you're yeah gonna no be- no literally man you have to be have to be seen and, and heard um and more you know, like they say in the superhero movies, with power comes great responsibility. And you said that. I think that's the respon- responsibility that I'm, I'm hoping that I'm able to exercise in some way, even more, you know, as much as I can. So that's it, man. I want to thank you for the time. You know, um, like I said, I think anybody here listening to this or watching this is going to benefit greatly, whether, whether it's you're an entrepreneur, a leader or whatever, a mother, a father. These are things that we should be talking about a lot more. Wow. I'm happy we had this conversation, man. And um, yeah, until next time, we'll have more conversations for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And let me thank you very much for this blessed opportunity. All right, man. Thank you, man. Have a great night. Absolutely. And we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Say hello to your family for me. I will, man. All right, bro. All right. All right. <laughs>